Professor Mark Weiner, welcome to Fritankes pod. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. You're a professor of constitutional law in America. Yes, that's right. Constitutional law and legal history. Legal history. And a few weeks ago, like mid-August, you wrote a piece in Dagens Nyheter about the philosophy of Trumpism. What is that philosophy? <laughs> well, first of all, it's important to acknowledge that Trumpism has a philosophy. I think one of the characteristic weaknesses of liberal political culture today is that we tend to ascribe our political opponents uh, as being somehow psychologically or morally deficient, but not take them seriously as thinkers. So with the Doggins Nyheter piece, one of the first things that I wanted to do was make a kind of intervention in, in that problem. So you would to, say that Trump is a thinker? Not that Trump is a thinker, but he certainly embodies ideas in action. And there are many people around him who are thinkers and yeah. who who contemplate serious political and social issues from the perspective of an intellectual. Mm. But but most important, Trumpism embodies ideas in what Trump does and and the the ways that he acts on the world stage. And most importantly, I think, Trumpism can be seen as a political philosophic reaction against the way that liberalism has developed in a distinctive way in the wake of World War II, post-war liberalism, particularly internationally uh, in its multilateralism and its universalism, its universalistic conception of the polity and of rights. And Trumpism, both in its domestic policies and in its international policies, reacts against that against that and and against the way that this is the the criticism from the right though it's also a criticism from the left and it's a criticism also that's particularly strong here in Europe the criticism is that a universalistic conception of the polity that's characteristic of post-war liberalism and that's embodied in certain international institutions is somehow corrosive of social and political community okay. and of the particularistic community values in which individuals uh, ultimately find their full expression. Uh, I, <clears throat> if you... If you sort of try to pin down the concrete goals of the philosophy of, of Trumpism, what would they be? Well, I would say the the concrete goal of right-leaning political philosophy across the spectrum of societies in the West in which it's increasingly emerging is a goal to resist globalization. Mm to resist globalization economically, to resist it socially, culturally, and politically. I would say that would be the ultimate the ultimate goal. You can see that in interesting ways, for instance, in Trump's recent speech to the United Nations, in which he was a strong advocate for what you would call normative pluralism on the international stage. And that normative pluralism, which is something we 
often as liberals don't acknowledge. What is that? Uh, what do you mean? Well, so uh, especially important for for Trump and his foreign policy is that the United States no longer engage in quote nation building, right? That we're we're not advancing now, or under his administration, he's no longer advancing a policy in which we seek to intervene in the political structures of other nations and have them conform to a certain liberal image. We don't have you have this in Sweden, or you've had it certainly in the past, uh, a feminist foreign policy. Right? Mm. That's as far from a Trumpian vision of foreign policy as you can imagine, because the idea is that we're going to let other nations uh, have their own particular social and political arrangements, even if they differ profoundly from ours, just so long as those nations don't pose an active military or economic Mm. threat to to ours. So there's a striking normative pluralism. And you can find that normative pluralism in in right-wing political thought, reaching back especially to the thinker who I think uh, Trumpism most notably echoes, and that is the work of Carl Schmitt, uh, the German legal philosopher, uh, known especially for his collaboration with the Nazis, but I think shouldn't be uh, cabined simply as as a Nazi legal theorist, Mm. and isn't in both right and and left-wing thought. There's a normative pluralism that's also characteristic or it connects in really interesting ideological ways to the valorization of particularistic communities domestically within the polity, so particular religious communities. But I'm thinking about this you describe as an anti-globalization philosophy or movement. Do you think also that... um, the rise of religious fundamentalism is also a reaction to globalism, or is it something else? Yeah, I think you could see certain religious extremists as absolutely. Uh, I'm thinking of the, Hin- the Hindu nationalists in India, for example. Yes, absolutely. You could also see that in uh, Russia today, for instance, yes. with the thought of Alexander Dugan. Exactly. Uh, who's entered the West, by the way, through a publisher that at least originally was associated with Sweden, now based in in Budapest, the Arctos, Arctos yeah. Press. Yes, yeah. That, that's a right extremist publisher, isn't it? Yes, I would say uh, Arctos is, uh, publishes very uh, fine and beautiful editions of very dangerous books. Mm. Uh, and in uh, one of those books is, uh, uh, or one of the, the authors that they publish is Alexander Dugan in uh, Russia, uh, uh, Alain de, uh, Benoit in in France, a thinker of the New Right, very interesting. Also has interesting connections with the history of left wing thought, uh, and uh, Dugan's embrace of religious particularism in a kind of way that a Schmidtian vein, a, a way that looks back to the work of of Carl Schmidt, can be seen as the assertion of social, cultural, and theological particularism against the universalistic theology yeah. of liberal globalization. Yeah. And uh, Alexander Dugan is is sort of the house philosopher of Putin, right? It's sometimes said to be the case. There, there mm. are others as well, but in the West, he's the best known. Um, 
do you, what, what what is the the actual situation in America right now? I mean, we saw a few weeks ago this anonymous uh, piece uh, article in was it in Washington Post or where was it? Which are oh, written by someone from inside the oh White House. Oh my, yeah, isn't no, that it wasn't it wasn't Washington Post, New York Times, New York Times, exactly. Thank you. Um, I mean, that seems to indicate that there's a lot of people around Trump that thinks he's more or less crazy and they have yeah. to sort of just cope with him. Yeah. Um, but what, as I understand you, what you say, you still mean that there are other people, intellectual people around him that actually likes what he's doing. Okay, yeah. so is there some so, kind of split within the White House right now? Well, I can't speak to what's happening in the White House other than what's evident in this recent mm. piece in the New York Times in which a senior official in the Trump administration seemed to undercut the authority of the president by indicating that there were many uh, people within the administration who were actively working to to constrain him. Quite extraordinary uh, thing. Yeah. But but as a, as an intellectual matter... I think you can say that uh, Trump himself uh, may raise real concerns uh, among people about his his stability, his sanity, certainly his moral fitness. All of that may be true. Uh, I happen to believe those things generally myself. But that doesn't negate the fact that his administration is guided by ideas and the yeah. movement that he now leads is animated by the ideas and those ideas aren't going away no. because they arise from challenges that our societies face. Our societies meaning societies across the West and liberals really need to confront those ideas in order to be able to respond to them effectively. Yeah, yeah. Can you name some of the intellectuals that you think sort of uh, drives the philosophy of Trumpism mm -hmm. around him? Who well, he, here's Steve here's, Bannon, I guess. Yeah, let's say take Steve Bannon. Mm. Uh, that's someone who's really engaged in uh, contemporary political thought in a way that I might disagree with profoundly. I, I do, but I wouldn't take away from him for a moment the, the appellation of being a, a, an intellectual, someone who's in, engaged with ideas. Mm. For, so for Bannon, I think what's most interesting about Bannon's thought is not his approach to economic questions, say, or his reading of the significance of the financial crisis. Instead, what's most interesting for me about Bannon's thinking is his views about history and the nature of historical time, the nature of time itself. M many thinkers on the right, Dugan is one of these, uh, uh, De Benoit is, is another, many thinkers on the right are ultimately engaged in a contest with liberal political theorists about the very nature of history and how it works. Mm. And Bannon is one of those people. So far from thinking, as many liberals might, in the words of, of uh, President Obama, that the arc of history bends towards justice, that we're, mm -hmm. that we're engaged in a historical process that over time leads towards some sort of 
uh, telos of universal individual freedom in a kind of Hegelian way. Bannon believes that history moves in a series of recurrent cycles of apocalypse and renewal. Mm. And ultimately, it's the job of the... the, um, administration today to to lead us through that cycle of or that period of epoch of apocalypse and into a, a new a new age of of renewal of american values and what do you so, believe about this definition of histories what how do you think history yeah. develops well i think personally well so first i should say from from the um uh about bannon that i think this is that his thought represents toxic blend of Toynbee and Jung mm-hmm. uh, in ways that, uh, yeah, I disagree with. And I would generally agree with the work of Karl Popper mm-hmm. in his writings about the open society, yeah. which rejects that kind of historicism, that rejects any kind of predictive value to historical historical studies mm. uh and, and i also would reject by the way all of the the work on the more extreme ends of the of the new right dugan say among them that actually proposes the theory that time time not just history that time can run backward that is at the yeah that it's i know it sounds a little bit wackadoo and, yes it and, sounds very new age mystical new age it's very yeah there's a very kind of mystical component to, to mm. dugan's work it sounds a little bit wackadoo i haven't fully grasped the metaphysics uh of the of the claim but at the foundation of his fourth political theory is that assertion that history and time can can run backwards i reject that mm-hmm. idea and all of its all of its implications so i i think we can work look back to the to the work of of popper and his criticism in the open society uh, the foundational text in some ways of post-war liberal yeah. uh, thinking which was written as a criticism of plato and of hegel mm. and of all of the followers that uh, came in in their wake who and and was based on an argument that that type of historicism ultimately from plato forward is a also an argument for increasing social hierarchy that's mm. that's the popper in I'd like to go back to, to yeah. the people around Trump. We we named mm. Bannon. Are there any other particular persons that we should keep an eye on that sort of um, builds this intellectual? Yeah, I would I would read. Uh, no, these are not people in the administration itself, but I would read the Claremont Review of Books out of California, and the Claremont Review is a very interesting, lively journal of. Conservative ideas uh, of the type that's very sympathetic to Trumpism. Many conservative outlets, from uh, libertarian thinkers to traditional social conservatives to the National Review and everyone in between. Evangelical you, right? As uh, well. Yeah, not there. But you'll find among mm. these other thinkers mm-hmm. great criticism of Trump. Mm. Uh, I think you'll find great criticism of Trump possibly don't hold me to this in uh, certain catholic social conservatives i'd want to look at the journal first things it's mm. called but among the claremont review crowd you'll find a lot of um 
populists who like to quote Dante. Uh, yeah. And 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 it's a very interesting journal, very sympathetic to to Trump and the administration. And that's the journal that I would read mm. to see where things may be going. Okay, that's very interesting. Yeah. Do you think that I mean, if we define sort of the the fall of the Berlin Wall, eight to nine, as some kind of starting point for liberal market economy globalization, would you agree to that? Sure. Uh, would you say that that period in our modern history has sort of come to an end now? Yeah, it's it's the end of the post post war era. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and and what's coming? What's coming? Well, is it is it an illiberal democracy anti globalization period that is coming now? Would you say? Well, I I have faith that liberal democracy will survive and I hope triumph, especially if we develop the right ideas and the right political strategy and are careful in providing the very best possible reading to the ideas of our opponents so that we can respond to them effectively. I think we will win, but there's no question that the liberal ideas that have developed in the wake of the post-war period are under substantial attack across the liberal world. And whoa, what's coming, who who knows? Uh, but it seems to happen almost independent of each other in so many areas, like national Hindu, Hindu nationalists in India, Hungary, Poland, Brexit, Trump. I mean, yeah. uh, in Sweden, the Swedish Democrats. Yes, God, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's happening independently, but it seems uh, that in fact everyone was responding to particular structural problems within yeah. social and economic life that are endemic across the across the globe. Okay, and what are so those problems? See, well, uh, uh, among let me put the problem in a. In a cultural frame, the problem is the problem that was described by Karl Marx in 1848, uh, describing capitalism generally, namely all that solid melts into air, that certain traditional communities are being uh, undermined and people are seeking to find their place, their security uh, within uh, an increasingly complex global world. And of course, there are then also problems of increasing uh, inequality. Yeah. Uh, so, so something is happening. It's happening everywhere. In Europe, generally, right-wing populist parties have a very similar level of support, whether it's in Sweden or uh, in, in Germany. They're, you know, roughly comparable. It's about the same level of support of what you could call the core of the Trumpian movement in the United States, mm. which represents about, say, 17 percent, 20 percent of the American electorate. Uh, something's happening. We'll see where it goes. Um, you wrote a couple of years ago uh, mm. a very interesting book called The Rule of the Clan with, a, with an interesting subtitle, which is what an a- ancient form of social organization reveals about the future of individual freedom. 
It's a long subtitle. <laughs> <laughs> my, my publisher a, was kind. <laughs> yes, very, <laughs> I must say. I'm a publisher. I wouldn't have such a long subtitle. An eyebrow was raised. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, it is actually a very... Because uh, as a reader, I'm thinking, what, what can clan mentality teach us today? So tell us. Well, I suppose a couple of things... First, the, the book was written partly as an intervention in certain debates about the proper role of government in the mm -hmm. United States. And it was meant specifically as a response to certain libertarian or anarcho-libertarian ideas. Uh, in particular, the idea that, as Ronald Reagan put it many years ago, that as government expands, liberty contracts as sure as a principle in the law of physics. There's, there's, at least in our political culture, there's been a conceptual opposition placed between government and individual freedom. And I mean in the book, or meant in the book, to reverse that formulation and to argue that if you look at societies in which states are weak, societies both today and across history, what you find that in is in the absence of a robust central government authority. Individuals tend to cluster into clan or clan-like groupings in order to protect their interests. And those groups are a groups that is they're focused on the coherence uh, uh, and the, the health of themselves as collective organizations, and they're groups that predicate individual membership on the distribution of rights and benefits to their members based on those members' respective roles or places or status within the organization itself. So they tend to be quite hierarchical. Mm. And what that shows us is that, in fact, in the absence of the modern state, the absence of the modern state is not some sort of libertarian magic dust world of individual freedom. It's, in fact, exactly the kind of collectivist, hierarchical world that many libertarians and many liberals uh, fear. A. B, I think, if you look at clan societies across the spectrum the, in which they exist or have existed, you'll also find that those societies achieve many goods mm. that liberal societies have a much greater time uh, or a much more difficult time achieving. Mm. And those are goods of especially uh, community solidarity and relative, call it social justice or social and economic e equality. And I think that liberal societies today, if we're to survive, if we're to make it through this challenging period in the history of liberal polities, we need to also look back to uh, the type of societies that existed before the advent of the modern state and see the ways in which they meet human needs sometimes better than we do and learn from them. But when we we now live in a you know migration situation here in Sweden, for example, where people come from, a lot of people have come from these clan societies like Somalia or Afghanistan or whatever, and and they meet a completely different organized society, a state, a state obviously. Um, 
what do you think about the friction that comes about between clan and state uh, in a country in Sweden? And how? what's your advice for, for Sweden to deal with that? <laughs> yeah. Well, ask me, you can ask me that question, especially at the end of this year, um, spending mm-hmm. the next 12 months at Uppsala University uh, learning about Sweden and uh, trying to understand in part exactly that kind of question, but specifically in relation to the work of your uh, emergency medical personnel, ambulance nurses, and other mm. and other first responders. But it shouldn't be a surprise that uh, when a substantial number of immigrants from a society, say, take Somalia, come into a Nordic country like Sweden, which is a highly individualistic in its values, in which there's a very strong state that contains very or possesses very high levels of trust from the population, that there'll be friction because many of the the immigrants that you've very generously taken into your society since 2015 come from places where states are weak, where they're not to be trusted, uh, and where individual autonomy values are are reduced. So, yeah, there'll be there'll be friction. It will manifest itself in a whole variety of ways. Uh, cultural competence uh, on the part of Swedes who interact with uh, with immigrants from other societies will be important. But so will the long term multi generational process of mm. uh, of integration of those communities uh, into Sweden, as it's been elsewhere in the world. Mm. Uh, for me, I think the most important thing that uh, can be done uh, to encourage integration from uh, uh, of immigrants from societies governed by what I call the rule of the clan is, and this will not seem especially practical, and it, it will seem uh, abstract and really long-term, but it's to encourage the development of literature and the arts uh, among those communities. Mm-hmm. Because the communities, the generation that you have now in Sweden since 2015, they will be the bridge between a society governed by the rule of the clan in many of the places where they come. Societies governed by the rule of the clan to societies in which not clans, but rather clubs are important, mm. in which associations that are based on individual membership choice are essential. And that transition, that historic transition from the rule of the clan to a society governed by clubs, that's accomplished through individual acts of uh, uh, and collective acts of the imagination. Mm. And... For that, that is the reconciliation of an older way of being into modernity is is the task in part of literature. And so, what I would do is, um, yeah, encourage encourage literature and the arts. Mm. That's that's very interesting advice, actually. Okay, I want to change subject a little bit mm. uh, before we end this uh, little. Chat. I'm um, so sorry that it might be ending. <laughs> uh, no, but you you have been thinking a bit about the Swedish constitution and mm. its weaknesses. I mean, yeah. we have a situation now where uh, nas- nationalistic 
party is growing yeah. rapidly in Sweden. Yeah. And uh, you, you've mentioned uh, that the Swedish constitution is actually quite weak yeah. uh, compared to, for example, the American constitution. Yeah. Can you, can you define what you mean by that? Yeah, I, I would say it's, it's weak in, uh, not in its like, protection of fundamental rights or no, you know, no. structures that establish. It's, it's weak in the sense that it is, compared to the American constitution, relatively easy to amend and that you could have... Uh, uh, the creation of an anti-democratic constitution through democratic means in Sweden in a way that is far easier and more swift than than in America. It takes in Sweden only uh, a majority vote across two general election cycles to make a fundamental change in your constitutional arrangements. So I would be concerned about that going forward. And there are other things that I would be concerned about, too, and you you use the term constitutional weakness. I'm not sure that I would say that just because it sounds so loaded, especially for an American to say that. (laughs) But but there's another... eh, Let's use the term weakness. Why not? Okay. Okay. And that is, I think you have also compared to the United States, you can tell me if I'm wrong, uh, a weaker culture of popular constitutionalism that is i think if you if you ask any american student for instance i've been involved in teaching Mm. some swedish students if you ask any american student to name say the uh five supreme court justices Mm. they'll be able to do it if you if okay yeah yeah, not in sweden not in sweden (laughs) no 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 if you ask any american student to uh recite uh, indeed, most American citizens recite the first words of the preamble of the Constitution of the United States. Let's do it. Oh, very, very many. Indeed, it's part of our citizenship exam that we give as a process of naturalizing yeah. immigrants. Uh, yeah, you're very right because this typical Swede would not know a, a judge in the Supreme Swedish Supreme Court. Right. Could the could the average Swede even name the four major parts of the Swedish Constitution? Right, no. the fundamental laws. No, no, right. In the United States, the the Constitution has a really significant role to play as a civic symbol and icon, a kind of civic religion, and I think that f- that role that the Constitution plays and that constitutional discussion plays in the United States is a really significant integrative mechanism Mm. uh, for us and also may put brakes on certain uh, fundamental political changes that we might want to to resist. But you also mean that a a Swedish uh, non-democratic party could quite easily uh, sort of... change the constitution how yeah. would that yeah. ha- happen in practical terms oh uh, you would get a majority in parliament uh, you would propose uh, uh, a transformation of constitutional arrangements you would go through two election cycles each wish with a majority vote and then there would be the change i think that's mm. basically how the 2000 transformations happened right mm-hmm. and so and that so, couldn't yeah. happen in america no no so the the process of constitutional amendment that is defined by Article 5 of our Constitution is extraordinarily complex Mm -hmm. uh, and is very hard to push through. That's why there have been so very few 
constitutional amendments. Twenty some times the Constitution has been changed in the United States since 1787. Mm, yeah, and it's it's even endured throughout uh, turmoil much more serious than our own today. But still you have the Supreme Court that a lot of people in Swedish press, you can read that it's 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 a high risk that it now becomes a very conservative Supreme Court yeah. with Kavanaugh, for example. The, yeah. and, um, and then if that happens, uh, things can change quite a lot, like Roe versus Wade, the mm-hmm. abortion... Uh, thing could suddenly change in all America that you, you won't have free abortions in the same way, for example. Could, could that happen? Well, I think that might might be overplayed okay. uh, in the international press. It's not to say that the Supreme Court isn't extraordinarily important, mm. uh, and and some decisions that it hands down are very substantial indeed and can lead to fundamental social and political changes. At Brown versus. Board of Education in 1954, for instance, which was... Which was uh, that? Was uh, that it? was the desegregation decision uh-huh. that, that uh, declared that segregated educational facilities, uh, facilities segregated on the basis of race, violated the Equal Protection uh-huh. Clause of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Very interestingly, a footnote uh, in that decision, probably the most famous footnote, second most famous footnote <laughs> in American constitutional law, okay. uh, contained a very important citation to the work of Gunnar Myrdal. Really? Uh, yes. So Gunnar Myrdal has a uh, very important intellectual role to play as a progenitor of the type of thinking about race relations that was cited by our Supreme Court in probably the most important decision of the 20th century. That's very interesting. Yeah. So, so what is oh, the most yeah. famous footnote? You have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the most famous footnote is footnote four of Caroline Products, a decision from 1938, which essentially lay the jurisprudential foundation for the New Deal. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, but that gets really into the weeds okay, of constitutional okay. <laughs> scholarship. But, but I would say, okay, the Supreme Court... It can hand out decisions of enormous consequence, but it also hands down one decision at a time. I also think about the uh, possibility that the court could fall into the hands of primarily conservative jurists is maybe misunderstood also uh, abroad. I should say that uh, I'm, I'm an opponent of the type of legal thinking that Judge Kavanaugh Uh, uh, Justice Scalia, uh, Justice Thomas, other conservatives on the court advance. But Mm. in relation to questions of, uh, say, the right to abortion and and other rights that are especially of concern to people, what conservative jurisprudence does is essentially hand back the question of whether those rights should be protected into the hands of democratic majorities. And I think if there's a criticism to be made of liberal political actors from the early 1960s forward is that they, I'll say we, have looked especially to the court to advance uh, uh, our conception of of, of fundamental rights. And we've wanted the decision about whether those fundamental rights apply to restrict 
democratic lawmaking to be taken out of the political process and put into the hands of of justices. Justices who, because they are appointed for life, don't have any political accountability. Mm. And I think, and I'm hardly the first to say that, that's to say this, that looking to the court over the course of the past 50 years has drained some political energy out of liberal political movements mm. and has also maybe weakened our uh, rhetorical political skills in that there might be an upside, in fact. This is maybe more of a provocation than something I believe. Ask me, ask me in a year whether or not I believe this, but I, I think I do. Uh, there might be an upside to the court falling into conservative political hands, at least in certain spheres of political life, because liberals will then be forced to advocate mm. for their positions and to convince their fellow citizens okay, that they're right. Yeah. Okay, that's a very interesting point. Yeah. Final question. You are in obviously in Sweden now. How long, yeah. how long are you staying? I'm staying until... Uh, late August uh, or as long as you will have me. <laughs> <laughs> and so what's your plans while, while in Sweden? So I'm, I'm based uh, at the Swedish Institute for North American Studies mm. at Uppsala University. Mm. I'm here through the good uh, offices of the Fulbright Program, yeah. which is an academic exchange program that brings American scholars and students abroad to learn from you and vice versa. And I'll be teaching a couple of classes about American politics Mm. I'm starting one next week, a basic introduction to the American political and governmental system. And then I'm also conducting research into the work of Swedish ambulance workers. Okay. I'm a volunteer emergency medical technician back mm. in the United States. And I'm interested in the ways in which the immigration wave here since 2015 may or may not have affected the daily work and the treatment practices of ambulance nurses. Okay, that sounds great. Uh, Professor Mark Weiner, thank you for talking to me. It was a pleasure. Mm -hmm.